Eric Weiss was one of the greatest escape artists of all time. Do you know his name, his stage name? Harry Houdini, that's right. One of Houdini's most spectacular feats occurred in New York Harbor. Tied with a rope, locked in a packing case, bound with tape, he was tossed into the water. He reappeared unshackled in just 59 seconds. Houdini's assistants would say his motto was simple. They quoted him as saying, I only get into situations that I can control and from which I can escape. And I would imagine that we have a few escape artists here tonight. Perhaps you live by Harry Houdini's motto. I only get in situations I can control and from which I can escape. This is why many people run from God. For God can't be controlled. And from His scrutiny, no one escapes. Try as you might, but it's impossible to free yourself from the shackles of divine accountability. You see, God has a way of cornering us. He orchestrates circumstances that often put us between the rock and the hard place, situations that force us to reconsider the direction of our lives. You see, God can turn a person around. In a myriad of ways, it's been proven over and over and over again that life cannot be controlled and God cannot be escaped. And this is what Israel discovered. Famine, drought, pestilence, plague, even the threat of war were God's tools to arrest the people's attention and to turn them back to Him. Despite what they thought, they were not in control. Despite what they said, they could not escape. Amos, that southern prophet, that in-your-face prophet, that bold and brash prophet, that redneck prophet. Good old Amos, the southern boy, came to Israel in the north and called on them to repent and to turn back to God. Tonight's chapters are summarized in chapter 5, verse 4, where it says, Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Chapter 4 starts with a word to the women of Samaria. You ladies, Perk up your ears. Here's a word to you. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Sounds like the housewives of Samaria. On one of our trips to Israel, while we were in Bashan, which was up in northern Israel, I spotted several cows grazing on the hills. Cows of Bashan. And I read this verse from Amos chapter 4 to our tour bus. Afterwards, some of the gals on the tour brought me a souvenir. This cuddly little cow. The cows of Bashan. Actually, they weren't too fond of the metaphor. Amos calls the women of Israel fattened cows. In a Sunday school class, one little girl, she asked the question, or she was asked if she knew the story of Adam and Eve. This little girl replied, yes, I know the story. First, God made the man, 
And then looked at him and said, I think I can do better. So he created the woman. Obviously, her version must have come from her mom. But I believe that there is some truth to her version. It may be that women were the first to be conned by Satan, but women are often the last to be corrupted. Traditionally, women have a stronger moral fiber, deeper spiritual leanings than most men. That's why when a society's women become immoral, you know that the culture is depraved. You know it's well on its way to demise. When women are corrupt, the culture is headed for collapse. And such was the case in Samaria. The women of Samaria, Amos points to the wives of the officials and nobles. They had become cruel. They had become greedy. The commoners were dying of thirst while they were in their penthouses getting drunk, asking their husbands for more luxuries. These women had gone from nice to vice. Rather than use their status to benefit the needy and work for the poor, they had become oppressors. These cows of Bashan were spoiled, they were fat, and they were ready for slaughter. I'm sure you've heard the expression, Jewish princess. It describes a young secular Jewess who lives a pampered, luxurious life, extravagant life, funded by her rich dad. Here Amos is targeting the Jewish princesses of his day. And he refers to them as cows of Bashan. Bashan was the fertile, lush pasture land northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Amos, being a cattle breeder himself, he knew that the sleekest, fattest livestock came from Bashan. The cows there were plump and spoiled, and so were the women of Samaria. Amos here pulls no punches. There was only one thing worse than riling the mare of Samaria, and that was upsetting his wife. And that's what you can bet Amos does here. He was a man of courage. He says in verse 2, The Lord God was sworn by His holiness, has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. One of the practices of the Assyrian army was to place fish hooks in the nose of their conquered subjects. Then they would drag them like a fish, drag them on a string. It could also be a reference to grappling hooks that were used to move hay bales. Either way, the calves of these women or the children of the cows of Bashan, they were headed for serious judgment. They were going to be conquered and subdued by the Assyrians. He says, you will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. There are some people who think Harmon was a dumping place for dead bodies. All these distressing metaphors of an Assyrian invasion surely didn't bode well for God's people Israel. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. What an invitation. The prophet says, come to Bethel and transgress. Remember, Bethel was the site of the official idol of the northern kingdom of Israel. He goes on, he says, come to Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. 
proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. And what he's doing here in verses 4 and 5, he's using a parody. And to help us understand it, we need to get the big picture. Imagine you being there at Bethel. The word Bethel means house of God. And this was a city rich in a history of encounters with God. You remember it was at Bethel that Abraham built an altar to God. It was also here that Jacob saw the ladder ascending into heaven. But sadly, Bethel had also become a seat of idolatry. It was at Bethel that King Jeroboam had set up one of his idolatrous altars. It was at Bethel that the people entered into false worship. They were bowing to a graven image in the name of the God of Israel. Now imagine yourself being there in Bethel. It's on a big day, the day of a feast. Streamers are now blowing in the wind. Banners have been unfurled. The streets are lined with decoration. Everyone is dressed to the hilt. It's a festive mood. We're waiting on the priest to open the ceremony with perhaps a traditional call to worship. Maybe Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The priest is about to open his mouth when suddenly we hear the voice of Amos thunder these words. Come to Bethel and transgress. Multiply your transgressions. The Hebrew word transgress means to break off. Its meaning is close to our word mutiny. Here he's inviting the people of Israel to come to the false altar and commit mutiny against God. It's a parody. He's mocking them in their idolatry. Collier's Encyclopedia has an interesting definition for the word mutiny. It reads, Simple disobedience or refusal to obey an order is mutinous. But no such single act of insubordination could be said to have flowered into full mutiny. A mutiny involves the intention to kill, displace, or continuously defy the officer. Unless we become overburdened with guilt, realize that a single act of disobedience is a sin certainly, but it stops short of idolatry. You see, sin is a violation of a command, whereas idolatry is an organized, premeditated attempt to usurp the authority of the commander. Hey, it's bad enough to commit a sin, to break the command, but what is far worse is to undermine the authority of the commander. And this is what the nation Israel was guilty of. Not just disobeying the commands of God, but far worse, they had organized a system of religion that usurped the authority of God Himself. When we apply this to us, we could say maybe a we could maybe phrase it like this: a single sin might be a glance at an ad, or maybe a billboard or something that pops up on your computer. It features a sexy girl. You think a lustful thought. You can repent of that. And you can try to avoid any future temptation. That's a sin. But idolatry is more than just the sin. It's 
the sin to be, it's, it's the temptation followed by the sin, but then it's the willful ignoring, ignoring of God's authority in that area of my life. In other words, when the repetition of a sin is more my motive than repentance from that sin, then that sin has become an idol in my life. Do you understand that? When the repetition of the sin has become more important, more my motive than the repentance from that sin, then the sin becomes an idol. Idolatry is the deliberate arranging and organizing of my life in such a way that I can pursue sin and put myself in close proximity to its temptation. Well, verse 6 tells us, Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Of course, cleanness of teeth was a proverbial expression for famine. No food meant that you didn't have to brush your teeth. The cleanness of teeth. In other words, God had sent Israel warnings. He had orchestrated situations, one of which was a famine, to get their attention, to cause them to realize they can't escape His judgment. I also withheld rain from you, when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. God had done all this to get their attention, and yet they remained in their rebellion. He says, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet again, you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Again, last week we mentioned that God's blessings sometimes surprise us. But His judgments are never a surprise. They're always marked out by sufficient warnings. You see, to be judged by God, you had to have gone through stop sign after stop sign. You had to have run through red light after red light. God always gives us ample warning. Here in these verses, Amos describes the wake-up calls that God had sent to Israel to try to get their attention. I wonder what red lights, wake-up calls, stop signs God has put in your life that maybe tonight you're ignoring. I read recently where an FBI agent in Iowa, he ignored a do not enter sign in barricades to try to save some time by cutting through a construction area. He ended up driving his car into six inches of freshly poured cement. He was ultimately fined $1,000. You see, I don't care who you are. If you drive past God's warning signs, you are headed for heavy fines. You can stay out of wet cement by staying obedient to God. Well, he roars. Amos roars in verse 11. He says, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Now here's a modern colloquialism that we get from the Bible. How many times have you heard the expression, a brand plucked from the burning? 
like a red-hot poker pulled from the fire. Here's a person who's been rescued from fiery circumstances. And this was Samaria, the capital of Israel. At the time, some of the surrounding Israeli cities had already fallen victim to the Assyrian army. Samaria, though, had been spared time and time again. God kept rescuing the capital city from the fire. But how much longer would His mercies last? How many more times would God pluck them from the fire? And how many times has God spared us the results of some foolish action in our lives? How many times has your life been spared? When will you get the message? When will you heed the warning and return to God before it's too late? He says that Samaria was like, was like an iron or a brand plucked from the burning. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Remember Harry Houdini. Houdini thought that he could outsmart the Grim Reaper and escape death's clutches. He once told his wife that he would try to appear to her after he had died. It was the one stunt at which he failed. Houdini could free himself from many a dangerous circumstance, but not from the shackles of death, and neither can you. In the end, death tracks us all down. The grim reaper ushers us all into heaven's courtroom to stand before a holy God. That's why tonight, before you leave this room, you would be wise to prepare to meet your God. You never know when your appointment comes. Verse 13. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Amos reminds God's people who it is they're dealing with. Hey, don't ever refer to God in some kind of trivial way. I shudder when I hear people talk about the man upstairs. Or you know the big guy. Who, are they, who do they think he is? Who are they talking to with such irreverence? God makes mountains rise and whips up the wind and reads the thoughts of men and causes darkness. He even strolls on the mountain peaks. His name is the Lord of hosts, in essence, God is the ultimate boss. In 1715, the king of France, Louis XIV, he died. Before he died, he called himself Louis the Great. He was the monarch who arrogantly uttered the famous line, I am the state. Well, his funeral was spectacular, as you might expect. Thousands of people attended. His body laid in state in a gold coffin. To dramatize his greatness, he had given orders that the cathedral where the funeral was to be held was to be dimly lit with just one special candle sitting above the coffin. Of course, a symbol of himself. But when the bishop arose to give the funeral address, before he spoke, he reached over and he snuffed out that candle, reminding the French people that only God is great. This is the truth that Amos is now teaching Israel. Well, chapter 5 begins. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. 
Again, we're at a festival. Perhaps this is an annual harvest festival. People have gathered to Bethel, to the altar of the idol. From all over the northern kingdom, they've come now to worship the golden calf of Jeroboam, to praise Jeroboam's God for the harvest, for the autumn harvest. It's a joyous, it's a happy time for everyone but Amos and God. For in the midst of the levity, in the piercing through the laughter, all of a sudden, Amos announces that he has a funeral message to preach. Hear this word that I will take up against you, O house of Israel, a lamentation. Amos is going to preach a funeral in the midst of this party. Talk about throwing a wet blanket over something. Amos is about to crash a party with a eulogy, a lamentation. These people have gathered to drink and make merry. But Amos is mourning. God is grieved over these people's sin. Reminds me of the new pastor who took over a dead church. It's all you can say about it. One Sunday morning, the people walked in to the sanctuary and they noticed a black coffin right in the altar of the church. The pastor rose and he asked the people to please file by and pay their last respects to the deceased. What they didn't know is that the pastor had placed a mirror in the empty coffin at just the right angle so when they looked into the coffin, they would see themselves. Here at Calvary Chapel, we're thankful that God has blessed us with an alive and with a growing church. But if we neglect the message of Amos and the warning to repent, we too can get spiritually sick. We can eventually die. Amos is trying to wake us up without a wake. Verse 2 The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. He's describing the coming destruction of the Assyrian invasion. He's saying only 10% of the population will survive. And Amos' words were fulfilled just 36 years later when in 722 B.C. Samaria fell to the Assyrian army. He says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. In the Old Testament, the true God was not to be found in Bethel or Gilgal, but in the temple in Jerusalem. This was the one place that God had promised to meet with man. Amos cries, seek the Lord and live. But realize, in order to seek Him, you've got to know where to look. And the same is true for us. There's only one place in the world today where God has promised to meet with man. And that is in His Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, if you want to seek God and live, you have to come to Jesus. You can seek and seek and seek. And if you don't know where to look, you won't find Him. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn, to just, turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. 
He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is His name. Pleiades and Orion are constellations in the heavens. He's saying God made the stars. God made the sea. God made the rain. He even makes the morning. He even paints the night. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. You know, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, Paul tells Timothy the same will be said in the last days of people within the church. A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. As Amos said, they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Verse 11, Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. God had multiple beasts with Israel. Here he says their sins were manifold and mighty, many and mighty, oppressing the poor, overtaxing their citizens, even taking bribes were just a few of their transgressions. Which reminds me of the pastor who was asked to do the funeral of the meanest, most wicked man in town. The dead man's brother approached him right before the funeral. And he asked the pastor if at some point in the, in the eulogy, if he could possibly tell the congregation that his brother was a saint. Well, the pastor said, that's impossible. And I'm an honest man. There's no way I could deliberately distort the truth like that. There's no way I could ever lie and say that a crook was a saint. Well, that's when the brother, kind of notorious himself, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a big wad of money and he handed it to the pastor. Are you sure there's nothing you can do for me, pastor? The pastor thought for a minute, took the money, and he said, well, let me see what I can do. Well, at the funeral, the pastor, he stepped up to the pulpit, began to preach his eulogy. Let me just say a few words about this deceased. The man, this man was the mean, wicked, nasty, rottenest, low-down man I've ever seen. He was just a sorry excuse for a human being. And our community is better off without him. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Well, Samaria was full of scoundrels. Folks who could care less about the poor. Who thought only of themselves. But I wonder, what about us? You know, are we so busy trying to thrive that we've forgotten the people around us who are just trying to survive? The people of Samaria had forgotten about God, and as a result, they were only concerned for themselves. Where do the poor and needy rank in your priority list? Spiritual fervor and social justice go hand in hand. You can't truly love God without loving your brother too. And verse 13 tells us, Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. 
So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. You know that the day of the Lord is when God brings an end to this current age and ushers in His glorious kingdom. Now remember, the Hebrew day, it begins and it ends at sundown. Therefore, in the Hebrew day, nightfall precedes daylight. In our English day, it's just the opposite. But in the Hebrew day, night precedes day, or or darkness precedes light. And the same is going to be true for the day of the Lord at the end of the age. You see, the day of the Lord will begin with the night, or with a time of darkness and judgment. But it will end with a time of blessing and great light. The Jews, though, they misunderstood. They thought that the day of the Lord was all about blessing. They anticipated the day of the Lord's goodness. But they failed to understand that it was preceded by a night of destruction. That's why he says, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Verse 19, it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? In other words, when God brings a close to this age and his kingdom comes to this earth, it will begin with a terrible time of judgment, great tribulation. Just read Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It describes that time. And here he's saying, there'll be nowhere to hide when God decides to judge the earth. You flee the lion and the bear will get you. You flee the bear and the serpent will bite you. No man can outrun God. Joe Lewis may have been the greatest boxer who ever lived. He was a tough hombre. During his reign... As heavyweight champ, he was once scheduled to fight a Pittsburgh boxer named Billy Kahn. Billy Kahn was a fleet-footed fighter who relied more on speed and quickness and agility than on brute strength. In fact, Kahn had the nickname The Runner. Just before the Kahn fight, Lewis was asked if he could overcome the hit-and-run tactics of Billy Kahn. Lewis's reply is now a famous quote. He told the sports writer, He can run but he can't hide. And you too can run from God, but you won't be able to hide. One day you're going to stand before God. Tonight, perhaps you need to surrender your life to Him. Make Him your Lord and Savior. Maybe you know Him as your Savior already, but there's an area of your life tonight where you're ashamed. You've been trying to hide it from His scrutiny. Maybe God has placed a specific calling on your life. 
And you're afraid of the cost that might involve. And so you've been trying to duck God and His will for you. Again, let me just say, you can run, but you can't hide. God's going to get you. Good thing He's a loving God. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Wow. How would you like it if we all met in here on a Sunday morning? All of a sudden, God thundered from heaven. I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. We all thought we were doing God a favor by showing up at church. God said he hated our sacred assemblies. The story is told of a husband and a wife who were driving home from church one Sunday morning. When she asked him, she said, Did you see that new hat that Joan was wearing this morning? Husband replied, no, I didn't notice it. She said, well, did you notice that dress that Susan was wearing today? No, I didn't notice that either. Well, did you notice those shoes that Betty had on? No, dear, I didn't. The exasperated wife said, for goodness sake, a lot of good it does you to come to church. Well, Amos is speaking to this exasperated wife in her own words. A lot of good it does for you to come to church. There are people who go to church for the wrong reasons. Their bodies show up, but they leave their hearts behind. They pray, they sing, they read, they raise their hands. They supposedly praise the God. They supposedly praise God. They even study their Bible. But their heart is A-W-O-L. There's no passion. There's no desire. They're going through the motions, but without the devotion. He says in verse 22, Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. It's like you're putting the money in the box, and all of a sudden somebody grabbing your hand, and God's saying, Hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want that from you. Not until I have your heart. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. God hated his people's worship because it was all a sham. They were playing their instruments, singing their songs, giving their offerings, but it was meaningless to God. If you love God, you're going to care about what God cares about. You can't say you love him, then ignore the Lord's concerns and interests. These people were good at praise and worship and potlucks, but they were short on charity and kindness and love. They were good at religious liturgies, but tragically they knew nothing about righteous living. Let me read to you some stinging words. They stung me when I've read them. Here's a quote. We humans have an immense ability to tolerate contradictions between our faith and our actions. It becomes a way of life. We live in two worlds. The faith we talk and sing about and the life we live. We, as God's people, need to close the gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. Are you closing that gap in your life? I think we all, in all of our lives, there's a gap. But are we working to close that gap? 
And I say, start where you're at. In your home, at your work. Dare to be pure. Dare to be passionate for God. Heard the true story of a lady who walked into an elevator. She looked over, and there was actor Robert Redford. She kept sort of glancing at him, you know, out of the corner of her eye, wondering if it was really the movie star. Finally, she just turned and she asked him, she says, Are you the real Robert Redford? He replied, Only when I'm at home. The faith we sing about in church is the faith we need to live out at home. Are you an authentic Christian? What kind of a gap is there between what you believe and how you live? He says, do you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? The answer was yes, they did. So why did they later resort to idols? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chihun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. The false gods he mentions here are Assyrian idols. Ironically, Israel will eventually be conquered by the people whose idols they now worshipped. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Even though the Hebrews were religious, even though they worshipped, that alone couldn't save them. As God said earlier, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, a faith that believes rightly will produce a desire to do what's right, to honor justice, to live out a righteous life. Now, in case you thought that Amos was a male chauvinist, and he only picked on the cows of Bashan, there you go, you would be, you would be wrong. For in chapter 6, he addresses their husbands, who as you'll see, if they were the cows of Bashan, these husbands were a bunch of bull. Amos addresses Sumerian officials, its leaders, in these, with these words. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Notice those words. Woe to you who are at ease. And let that be a warning to us as well. Be careful we don't drop our guard. You know the times when you're most vulnerable to temptation? When there's the greatest spiritual vulnerability? When you're most susceptible? Or when you kick back? Take a break when you're at ease. Wow, you've been fighting a battle. You've been resisting temptation. But now the struggle's over. Let me just take it easy for a while. Wow, I've earned this. That's when you become a prime target for Satan. It's when you're at ease. It's when you drop your guard. 2 Samuel 11 is the passage that deals with the infamous adultery of David and Bathsheba. But it's interesting how it begins. Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David remained in Jerusalem. See, David stayed behind. This was the time of the year when kings usually went to battle. But not on this occasion. David decided to take a break. Man, I've been fighting so many battles lately. 
He decided to kick back. He spent some time relaxing on the veranda. He dropped his guard, ratcheted down his intensity. And it was at that very point when he saw a naked woman bathing in the moonlight. Satan took advantage of him when he was at ease and nearly destroyed him. You've heard the old saying, idleness is the devil's workshop. It's true. It's been said, vacant lots and vacant minds both collect trash. I'm not suggesting we never take time to relax, but we should be cautious whenever we're at ease. Hey, be careful on Friday night after a long week at work. Be careful on the weekends. Beware when you're on vacation. You can rest your body, but don't let down your guard spiritually. Understand that Satan never takes a break from the spiritual battle, and neither should we. Verse 2 tells us, Go over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamoth the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? You see, these were cities the Assyrians had already ravished and conquered. Now he's asking Samaria if they're more virtuous than them. The answer was no. Thus, if God didn't deliver these cities, why is he going to deliver Samaria? He says, what are you who put far off the day of doom? who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from your flock and calves from the midst of the stall. I mean, mutton to eat, a bed of ivory, a person sprawled out on the couch. These are all symbols of a life of luxury. You can hear happy days are here again in the background. The furthest thing from the mind of the Samaritans was the day of doom. And Amos says, beware. Who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David who drank wine from bowls. I mean, here's again a sign of plenty. Wine is flowing. Not just the cups full, but the bowls full. And anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. What vivid imagery here. Amos predicts that the upper crust of Samaria, the top dogs of the city, will go straight from the banquet into bondage, from the party into prison, from the chalices to the shackles. Verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. And hate his palaces. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Notice what God hates. He hates pride. Heard of a pastor who stood one Sunday and he announced that there were a total of 739 different sins. On Monday he was besieged for, by request for his list. 739 sins? I want to know what they are. That's what some of the people thought. The unregenerate man, he gravitates towards sin. His nature is sinful. His tendency is to buck God and to bruise his brother. And at the root of all our many sins is one principal problem, and that is pride. You see, God can deal with all our other sins if we first repent of the one root sin 
which is pride. And then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, Are there any more with you? Then someone will say, None. And he will say, Hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. In other words, God's judgment is going to be so devastating, so sweeping. They'll be so awed by His power and His presence that people will be scared to utter His name. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Of course, the answer is no. Does one plow there with oxen? No. Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood or bitterness. In other words, you had a good thing going, man, but you've spoiled it. Your pride has gotten in the way. You've turned justice to poison and you've turned righteousness to bitterness. What were fertile fields are now ruins and rubble. You had a good thing going. Sin has gotten in the way. He says, You who rejoice over Lodibar, who say, Have we not taken Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. That will be the Assyrians. Says the Lord God of hosts, And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. The, ancient, the entrance of Hamath was the mountain pass from Lebanon to Israel's northern border. The valley of Arabah was the entrance into the Kidron Valley, which runs down around Jerusalem. In other words, from the northern border of Israel to the southern border, God is going to bring judgment. The idea is that all Israel is going to fall under the sword of the Assyrians. And that is what history confirms. So there we have Amos chapters 4 through 6.